1: and a secret proceedings Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had.
0: The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition
1: July eighth, 1947. to listen to part 2 of tonight's interview and all of our material going back to 2008 don't miss out and subscribe it's very simple all you have to do is click on the subscribe button of our website at veritasradio.com and you will receive your login immediately and have you listened to Sanitas radio yet take a look at all the shows we've done so far and all the upcoming guests you have no idea what these shows can do for you and your loved ones you will never hear what they have to say in the mainstream media. I guarantee it. Remember, your greatest wealth is your health. Check it out at SanitasRadio.com And for MMS or our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, go to the Veritas store. To get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, suggestions, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, Click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com And tonight we have a very, very special episode of Veritas. I'm here with a very special guest. Her name is Judith Very Baker. She's an American artist, writer, poet, and futurist. She's also the author of Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love and Lose, Lee Harvey Oswald. If you want to learn more about... Judith Very Baker. Visit her website also at meandlee.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from an undisclosed location outside the United States, I'm privileged to welcome Judith Very Baker. Hello, Judith, and welcome to Veritas.
0: Thank you very much, Mel. It's Good my, to be here.
1: It's my pleasure. <laughs> this is such a an important story that not that many people are aware of, Judith, and I think it's obvious to know why. But I think it's very important to to start from the beginning. I like to go in chronological order. I received your book. It's over, gosh, 600 pages long. And I think anybody who interviews you, it would be a disservice to you and to the, the listeners if they don't take the time to read this book. Because if you don't, you really don't know the story. So why don't we start from the beginning? You were born in Indiana. And... What happened next? You were a wizard at school, and you all of a sudden were recognized by your by your abilities at a very young age. Why don't you take it from there?
0: Oh, well, when I was um, 15 going on 16, uh, anyway, I ended up at the International Science Fair uh, with a new method for, a revised method, really, for getting magnesium out of seawater, and it gave me an opportunity to present to scientists and those reviewing uh, my work there, what I was doing in cancer research. Of course, I needed a lot of help, but I was already uh, given a lot of help um, where I was locally. My grandma had died of cancer, and I had cancerous fish. I would met a a famous doctor, Dr. Alton Oxner, and he encouraged me that it was cancer, and so I had my start there. Well, now I had an opportunity to show these people uh, what I was trying to do and they were impressed with what I'd already accomplished in chemistry and then when they saw the work I was doing with the cancer um, also with because of a man whose name was Knut Mickelson and he was a CIA asset he'd been a spy in the underground against Hitler and he was a geneticist and a radiobiologist and he had gotten me in contact with um, with Walter Reed uh, Institute and with Oak Ridge. But now uh, I, I had renewed um, contacts because of, of him uh, that developed at this time. And so all of a sudden I was getting help from not only from my wonderful high school, which is Manatee High and Colonel Doyle, but at the same time from doctors who were trained at, at uh, Oak Ridge seminars with the uh, help of the CIA's uh uh, interest and uh, participation as well, and so I uh, actually was doing pretty good work considering the fact that I was working in a stadium uh, underneath the stadium uh, on what I was doing. And then I crashed a very important seminar, a science writer seminar. Uh, there, I had to. I had work. I had. By the time I was 17, I had figured out how to give cancer to mice. And by the time I was ready to turn, um, well, I was still 17, actually. When they looked at all the materials I had uh, put together, I um, I had to crash the seminar, and so I did. And I went in between two press, uh, some two reporters. And I'm short, and and I flashed my press uh, card that was from my high school, and, and got in. Here come the police! They were going to get rid of me. <laughs> So I had to do something about that. And uh, I, I just s- said, please, you know, please listen to me. And from the stage, an august hand said, wait a minute. And they brought me forward. And I showed him what I had. He said, you sit with me. And I was sitting with the vice president of research of the American Cancer Society. And his name is Dr. Harold Deal. He was known for uh, you know, uh, helping young uh, scientists. But I was the youngest I think he ever helped. And next to him was Sir Robert Robinson, who was Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. And at lunchtime, I showed them what I had. They were kind of astonished. And then they uh, called Dr. Oxner and Dr. Moore was another one. So you had three doctors here, Dr. Oxner, Dr. Moore, and uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Deal. All three of them had been crusading against Cigarette smoking, they were sure that tobacco caused cancer, but they didn't have that much proof. And they went, they saw what I did. They saw that I had given lung cancer with tobacco products to mice in less than, well, it was seven days altogether, seven days. And nobody had done that before. So they were quite impressed with that. And from there on, with uh, Dr. Robinson, who, uh, Sir Robert Robinson, another Nobel Prize winner, and Dr. Harold Urey, uh, taught me how to put together um, my research uh, activities better and how to design my projects better. They went over everything I had with a fine tooth cone, showed me how to uh, really uh, do some uh, much better work. Uh, eventually, I was sent to Dr. Moore's laboratory over in Roswell Park, and it was his personal lab. And I also attended there the science. They had a, they had a a seminar like that was held all summer for students. I was in the graduate, the college graduate one. Now they've messed up those records. I was there in 1961. They said I was there in 62 and that I was a high school student. and None of that is true. I'd already graduated from high school. So to run it fast forward, we end up about uh, and I, by 1962, I am 19 years old. In 63, between 60, 1963 and uh, 1961, I received world-class training at Roswell Park. And then I was mentored at the University of Florida, worked with melanoma in the newspapers. We have all the reports. Uh, I was uh, assigned to try and make cancer more deadly. And at the time, I was told that, you know, yes, do this work. You know, get to be an expert on making cancer more deadly, because that way you'll be helping us to find out how we can conquer cancer if we can learn how to make it
1: more deadly. Let me go back in time, still to go in chronological order. Sure. First of all, your grandmother passed away of cancer. Yes. Was she the catalyst for you to go forward and and really look into a cure?
0: Oh, my suffering that I saw my grandmother go through. And not only that, but my aunt had been cured of cancer, but... At the cost of, well, they they thrust radioactive materials, you know, between her legs, and they burned everything out. And, uh, you know, from then on, she was never herself again. I mean, she was always in pain the rest of her life. So, obviously, their cure didn't manage to give her a quality life. And all around me, I saw people suffering from this. I couldn't understand uh, what I uh, realized, the nature of cancer, and to this day, I, I have to tell you, we have not done what we should in the cancer research area. Big pharmacy, pharma, uh, pharma has taken over. Excuse me, I'm kind of tired. I've had a couple of uh, interviews, as yeah. you know. and the, the progress we've made in the last five decades toward the cure of cancer is ludicrous, absolute ludicrous. We haven't uh, accomplished anything like what we could have. We have avoided working in the proper areas.
1: But how For old example, were you? We were, how yeah. old were you when you saved uh, Miss Molly's baby fish?
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I was 14 years old, and when I had Miss Molly, it was a uh, black Molly uh, fish. You know, They're, they they uh, are viviparous; yeah, they bear their young alive. And here. I thought what she, she had babies, well she did, but what she did also have is a huge uh, cancerous tumor, a pro- probably was a uterine ca- uh, tumor. Uh, I had to rip her open with a razor blade and get the babies out when well, it was obvious she was dying and, and um, I saved the babies and uh, I saved her cancerous tissue in alcohol. And lo and behold, the baby's got cancer too. Now I realize I had something I had, and of course, how to determine that it was cancer. That's where Dr. Oxner came in and and helped me there. So it started quite early. I I even missed my uh, junior prom, you know, to go to various science fairs. I missed my senior prom. My if you look at my. Picture in the yearbook, my hair is all done up funny, like a what is that? Well, I'm wearing a hairnet because I was <laughs> they I, they called me in. I was working in my own lab, and barely got time to have my own picture taken for the yearbook. So I looked like a you know some kind of nurse or something. My hair all pulled back and everything. So I spent a lot of hours on that. Even though I had boyfriends and and tried to have fun, have a normal life, I was dedicated. I wanted to cure cancer, and frankly, I feel that way to this day somebody put me in a lab, I would do something now. What happened
1: at at the school, Manatee High School, that did it become too dangerous to do cancer research, and that's why nobody at the school ever did research with white mice and cancer again?
0: Well, not only there, but um, after, yeah, they all came to my school, looked at what I did, looked at all the materials, and they shut my lab down. And uh, frankly, uh, I'd probably come across a, a deadly virus that was causing the cancer, and it was exacerbated by the, um, or triggered by the tobacco smoke uh, aerosol that had created. And these were germ-free mice, so they had picked up something and they were, you know, they shut that lab down. And probably a good thing that they did, matter of fact. Uh, but there we are, we had, you know, they've got a, a young girl here and she's given cancer to mice, lung cancer, they're interested in lung cancer. And lo and behold, Fife end up, as you know, after a couple of years of working uh, and getting uh, quite a hand, really, and being able to handle almost any lab technique you can imagine in that area, I'm uh, asked to come to New Orleans.
1: You uh, were a devout Catholic, and you almost became a nun. What stopped you from becoming a nun?
0: (laughs) Oh, my, nobody's ever asked me that before. You know, I mean, they've read the book, but... Well, yeah, I, I, the doctors had told me I couldn't have children because of a uh, dreadful uh, series of, of uh, problems I had when I was a little girl and I, I was in a hospital for almost a year and a half altogether and operations and so on. And So I wanted, to me, trying to cure cancer was the most important thing of all and it wasn't wouldn't be right the way I had been trained and raised as a Catholic to marry someone and they could never have children. So when I was at, uh, at this time at St. Francis College, which was close to the University of Chicago, that's where I intended to go as soon as I uh, could, um, accidentally, I, I'd be, received many, many scholarships, but somehow I, I, I didn't realize at University of Chicago, you had to fill out <laughs> application forms. I mean, all these opportunities to go to college and I never filled out a form for anybody. Uh, and uh, so I didn't get in that semester. I said, okay, I'll go to the university, I mean, St. Francis, you know, instead, and be there a few semesters, then I'll get into University of Chicago. That was my plan. Well, here I am there, and I got so influenced by these wonderful nuns, and uh, Sister Mary Veronica was one of them, but there were actually uh, several others, and I uh, presented a paper at the Indiana it was a anyway, it was a paper about uh, melanoma and melanogenesis and uh, i wrote home and said i'm going to become a nun because they told me i can they'll put me right through college and i'll I'll be able to devote entire my entire lifetime trying to get a cure for cancer well my dad came and got me out of there and he was so angry he never was really a good catholic he was forced to Pretend to become a Catholic because otherwise, my Hungarian family never would have let let him uh, stay married to my mother. Mm-hmm. They had eloped, so he was just a nominal Catholic. Well, he gave me all kinds of anti-Catholic literature when he got me out of there.
1: He he actually kidnapped. Yeah, you.
0: he kidnapped me. Yes, yeah. and he said, "I'm going. And if you you know if you try to go back, I'll have the police police arrest you. I'll put you in handcuffs. You belong to me." At that time, the law was. Uh, until you're 21, your you're dad, minor. your mom, they had the control of you. Yeah. So there I was. I was trapped. They locked me up on in an on an island. They had money. They could do that. And my dad said, "You're going to run my business. You're not going to go anywhere." And oh, um, dear God, I did not want to know what to do. And I did. I lost my faith. I thought, "Here, I've I've offered my life to God, and He doesn't even have the power to stop. You know, he, who doesn't, doesn't care?" It was a heartbreaking uh, moment in my life, a watershed moment. I became an atheist because all my prayers, instead of being answered, you know, ah, here I am, God. And what happens? <laughs> God didn't want me. Therefore, there is no God, you know. So that was rather primitive thinking on my part. I'm really grateful now that uh, that didn't happen. I went on, as you know, later in my life to have five children. And, and I'm, I'm glad that they were brought to the earth. They've been wonderful people. But let's face it, uh, I was very embittered, and I I was trapped. And my Aunt Elsie, the one who had been cured of cancer, and my grandpa, who was dying of lung cancer at the time, uh, their hearts were torn by what had happened, and, and they got me out of there. They contacted, through Colonel Doyle, Senator Smathers, who had previously offered me a full scholarship at University of Florida. So anyway, Smathers made sure I got into university, but it was late. It was almost, oh gosh, it was February 8 or 9 or 10, somewhere in there, way into the semester or trimester, and I really shouldn't have been there. And legally, of course, I should have failed if I put into the records, but they rigged up the um, computer and got me in anyway.
1: So, you have met uh, Dr. Alton Oxner already at that uh, convention that you quote-unquote infiltrated.
0: Yeah, that was my second time to meet him, yeah.
1: Right. So then one day you received a phone call. How did you get from Florida? And by the way, what a coincidence that uh, Ed uh, Haslam, the author of uh, Dr. Murray's Monkey, <laughs> also lives in Bradenton, Florida.
0: He moved there after writing his book. It's just remarkable. He didn't know anything about me when he moved there. Ended up at Bradenton. And it's like the hand of God because yeah. he had the opportunity then to look up all the records, all the news the original newspaper articles he knew I'd none of it had been faked or anything like yeah. that it was really hard for people you know many years later to say oh come on what do you mean she was doing cancer research and all that of course I was
1: so yeah. what happened afterwards what from Florida you went to New Orleans how did that happen
0: <laughs> well I had a fiance. now when I went to the University of Florida um, I'll put it this way my my son asked my uh, husband B. I mean, he was my uh, his dad then, you know. Said, Winna, what attracted to you to Mom anyway?" And he said, "Her legs." So, all right. At the University of Florida, there aren't there weren't as near as many women as men. It was an engineering and scientific uh, college, really, or university, and it was very, very good, in, especially in chemistry. And they founded the Peninsular Chem Research. Gatorade, you know, and and, um, plastics that are using contact lenses and so on. Very, very good in what they did. And anyway, so here I am, and and I'm one of the girls that's uh, surrounded really by these men that were in studying, you know, nuclear engineering, nuclear physics, uh, chemistry, and uh, biochemistry, radiobiology, and so on. So um, I... uh, pretty Much got whatever I asked for, really, at being a girl. It's amazing. Uh, and um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there isn't anything probably at that time that I hadn't learned how to do because I was placed in different kinds of labs and so on. But I was shocked to get the call from Dr. Ochsner. What had happened is um, well, this is embarrassing, but I thought I couldn't have babies. So Eventually, after six months of on his hands and knees, practically, I gave in to Robert Baker and we had relations, sexual relations, and I got pregnant. Back in the 60s, that's, ooh, that's not such a great idea to do and certainly don't want to. The man didn't even, wasn't even embarrassed about it. I didn't realize at the time that he must have been like autistic or something, that it wasn't that he was being courageous when he came to see me in the infirmary where they put me, but he simply, it didn't dawn on him that there was anything to be embarrassed about. Whereas my other boyfriends, um, one of them came to visit me and he only, his face was so red. You could have, he could have shined like a lamp. He was so embarrassed, but he, he wanted to see if I was okay. So anyway, this man says, I will go and, uh, I want to marry you. I don't want anything to happen to you. He says, but I've got to work for my parents. And, uh, Then I'm going to marry you. Well, I said, I'm not going to be here. And he said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, I'm going to go to New Orleans. I can't stay here anymore. And I'm too embarrassed to stay here anymore anyway.
1: But you had a miscarriage. Did you mention that?
0: That's what it was, a miscarriage. That's what, yeah. And so I, anyway, I went into the infirmary because of that and everything. I missed some important interviews. And all of a sudden I had nowhere to go for the summer and I couldn't go home. Not with the way my parents were at that time. and No, no way. And so uh, I was really high and dry in the air. I, so I called Senator Smather's office. He wasn't in town, but he uh, she switched me over. It's not in the book that way. She switched me over to Washington, DC, and I talked to another secretary and that secretary called uh, Dr. Oxner. And he called me and he said, well, we have, I know a good, steady woman. He said, "That can take care of you. I heard what you did. He said, why don't you make up your mind?" He said, first, you're a nun. You want to be a nun. Next thing I know, you have a miscarriage. He said, make up your mind what kind of woman you want to be, you know. And uh, he said, but I have a good, steady woman that would just be just right for you. I'd like you to come to New Orleans. I know what kind of work you can do. We need you. And so I'm going to offer you. And he did. He said, you can get into uh, medical school at Tulane two years ahead of time. You'll get a full scholarship for everything. You can work this summer with Dr. Mary Sherman, this eminent cancer research specialist. She likes you. She w- knows what you can do. She needs you to work with uh, important uh, things she's doing. And uh, see you uh, in the middle of May. Bye. Well, <clears throat>
1: A lot That's of these cool. connections that, and I apologize that I interject a lot, but yeah. just, no, no,
0: no, no, do because
1: yes, yeah, you uh, all these connections that you had was you, the colonel who used to be a teacher in high school or a mentor for you. Did he? he did he enable all of these connections to appear in your life?
0: Well, this is what happened. Um, Doc, uh, colonel Doyle had, was a West Point graduate, and he was uh, he was pretty well known in Florida because he did the. Well, it's a special science seminar program that he did, and he worked with uh, a physics program that was absolutely brand new. And he, he, was, uh, he was known all over Florida, uh, you know, to, uh, about uh, enabling uh, your universities and high schools there to work with uh, like PSSC physics and so on. And he had these connections. So that, that was a, a great help because he's the one that contacted Senator Smathers and told him, you know, hey, uh, Judy's in trouble. <laughs> you know, her dad won't let her leave and uh, she can't get to the university. You offered her a position. And Smathers said, yeah, I did. So he's the one who, who uh, enabled that to occur. But when we're talking about Oxner over there now in New Orleans, this is straight from Senator Smathers and he talking together because... Um, I had tried to get in on a program at uh, Miami University. I'd missed the, uh, you have to have these interviews, and I'd missed the interview because I was in the uh, infirmary. So uh, this gave, uh, Oxner basically, I haven't gone into that much detail, but basically he said, you know, I got a chance to get you. You know, basically away from uh, Smathers, wanted you in uh, University of Miami, but I want you, and I I can sweeten the pot. So that's what he did.
1: And Oxner, of course, offered you to, Skipped the last two years of undergraduate to go directly yes. to medical school. And that's the promise that you thought he was going to keep. But, of course, we'll discuss later what happened. <laughs> now, you got to New Orleans two weeks early. That was a difficult time for you, it's wasn't almost it? Almost
0: three weeks early, right? Yeah. And uh, he'd hung up. And at that time, we didn't have, you know, you couldn't tell where the calls are coming from for all these people who are so new out here and young. Uh, I, I knew he was somewhere in D.C., but I, I, I couldn't call him back. I, I didn't know where Dr. Oxner was, and he, he wasn't in New Orleans, so I had no way to contact him. And Then when the, gosh, here came the uh, ticket. He sent me the bus ticket. It was all paid for, and I said I could go to the, you know, check in the why. so I decided to use the ticket right away because I, I needed to go somewhere. The dorms were closing, and I, I, went, I didn't have a job there on campus because I had planned to, you know, work in a summer session somewhere. So there I was. I got on the bus and headed off to New Orleans. I told my fiancé, well, if you love me, come and marry me. He said, oh, I will. But I decided not to tell him that I was going to be staying because he had only like one more semester uh, before he'd graduate And I wanted those birth control pills. I wanted (laughs) I I thought I was in love with him, but I wasn't going to tell him that I was going to stay because I felt like, well, if he doesn't come, you know, that's that's the way it goes. He doesn't love me enough. But if he does, you know, when he gets here, I'll show him how neat the schools are here. He wants to go into geology now instead of English. I'll convince him to stay and then I'll tell him I have to stay and he'll marry me anyway. Well, it didn't quite work out like that, as you know, from the book. I ended up not being able to tell him anything about what I was doing. But uh, it's all explained in the book how.
1: But of course you to. you did get married eventually and of course you needed the 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 birth control pills because at the time you wouldn't be able to get the birth control pills unless you were married otherwise you just That's got con- exactly condoms, right. right? Yeah.
0: Yes and it was fun in uh 2014 uh 13 at the in uh New Orleans and in Dallas when I showed some of my evidence books here I've got this uh, page it turned to and, and there's the birth control pill the first one I it must be the I bet it's the oldest one there is anywhere because I kept the first birth control pill and uh, kept it with a letter that was <laughs> sent to Robert so to uh, ex- that's how much that meant so you know you think you're in love I was in sex yeah
1: now how were you able how were you able to capture one thing that amazed me after reading the book yeah. was your amount of detail. It's almost on a daily basis, blank here, I turn oh, my hands to... How were you able to capture all this? Did you well, write a journal? Well, first
0: of all, I use, I use mnemonics. For example, all the Lee names, like David Atlee Phillips, and, uh, uh, you, you know, you had uh, all the different names that were connected to... For example, uh, Brownlee was David Ferry's godson. and You had... Uh, everything connected. I connected him that way. I also did some other things because after Lee was shot and killed, I knew that I had to somehow, he had made me promise that I would one day tell his children who he really was. And it was a responsibility I took extremely seriously because it was the only way, it's the only thing I could do for him after all those years, you know, it's all I could do. So I took it quite seriously. I saved, ever, ever since I knew that I was in a project there that was to kill Castro, I started saving things. And I also started saving little bits and pieces because I was falling in love with Lee. Like I saved uh streetcar receipts. You know, you get these yeah. little tickets and they're quite fragile really. But I have I have one from july that i saved that was very important and of course one uh, april there april 28 i saved that because it was our that was on a sunday we went out also i have a a, a memory that um 60 minutes is, was aware of that when they were investigating me for 14 months and they got so interested in the ability of people to have good memories they've yeah. actually done a segment on that um i can remember almost every day of my life that is in pictures.
1: That's exactly what I thought when I read the book because it's almost you're narrating every single day in such a such detail. You I even, remember you, you, Often you,
0: I can remember the very meals I've had that, on that day. And,
1: yes and you uh, kept at time cards and you how did you get to keep all these uh, gosh mementos? Well, I, I,
0: well I, I felt like I had to do something first of all to prove it was historic if we actually killed Castro wasn't that important to show how it was done mm. and that was important and then of course when lee told me see in july on july 27th 1963 Lee told me that he thought he was going to die now that's very early in this game and i i, I was horrified and shocked. i started saving every little scrap of anything i could i wrote in the margins of books i had um a I still have it a dual language book for example, and on the margins I put uh, when I made phone call like to, to my grandpa to see if he was okay because he had cancer, you know and, and uh, i said you know, uh, went to see went to charity hospital, thing little things like that. And I after after Lee's death and after I was trapped with Robert uh, having to live with him and he was like autistic, he had Asperger's, we believe now. You know, when he died, none of his children went to his funeral mm. to understand the kind of emotional distance that he had with all, all of us. But in one way, it was good because he wasn't interested at all in what what I remembered, what I did. He, he just didn't have an interest. So I was able to write down every thir- Thanksgiving um, for years. The day after Thanksgiving, I worked very hard on Thanksgiving. The day after, it was like a day off where I said, I need rest. And during that day off, I, I stayed away from the newspapers. I stayed away from, but you can't get a, away from everything that you hear about the assassination. And I'd spend several hours every every year. Now, that may not sound like much, but when it, I did that for 35 years. Every time I remembered something that Lee had said, I wrote it down. And believe me, let, let me give you an example. Are you married, Mel? Yes, I am. All right. Do you remember the day you were married? Yes, I do you remember all the guests? Some of them. How how many years ago was it?
1: This was uh, 15 years ago.
0: Okay. Now imagine if every year you decide you were going to make sure you wouldn't forget who the guests were. Hmm. This is the kind of thing, I felt a responsibility, not only to Lee, okay, and his family, but seriously to history. I didn't know how many people might survive from what was going on. I knew who Lee really was, and I was determined not to forget the words he said. And I was determined every time I could remember something, I wrote it down.
1: How were Lee and you introduced?
0: Huh? <laughs> well, we you now believe it was no accident that Lee came to the post office. Imagine, I'm 19 years old. I'm so naive, and and I trust everybody, and um. Here, I came early, and the and I went to the YWCA, and they said, who are you? I expected, seriously, I expected the day I arrived, I would just call Ochsner's uh, clinic there and say, hey, I'm here. I'm here early, but uh, where do I go now? And I arrived early in the morning. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning when I arrived in New Orleans. I couldn't call them then. And when I went to the desk, they said, we have no record that you're supposed to be here. And I had to pay money, and I didn't have very much money with me. I, I had assumed everything would be just dandy, you know, when I arrived. So, I, and I went with into a room that had four girls in it. Actually, three and a fourth came a little later. And she came naked, wrapped in newspapers when she arrived, by the way, because she'd been in a rage. She was a stripper, and so was her girlfriend who was there in the room. So, two strippers... A playboy bunny and a waitress, and they were hard as nails. sweet girls, but boy, were they tough! And they they looked at me like I was just a baby bird, ready ready to be eaten by all the cats in New Orleans. And believe me, I uh, started to get that impression myself.
1: But but at the at the post office, why do you think that Lee talked to you in Russian?
0: Oh, okay. That, that, that first of all, let's we'll go back. I started I wrote a, a, a one letter that I had allowed to write to my fiance because he didn't want his parents to know this, and it was to' it was supposed to be from Raleigh Rourke, his friend that's so an R Rourke. Now, I didn't know that Lee knew someone called Alex Rourke. anyway, his eagle eye caught that on the uh, on the letter that I was sending. What's important about that? I'm in the post office. this young man's behind me. and um, I know, we now believe, of course, he was sent because I was getting myself into some trouble, and the doctors couldn't get back yet to help me. And I had to, um, I had to find a job, something to, uh, to for the next couple of weeks till they got back. And in, into this mess, Lee Oswald marches. And I know we can't we can't think that it was an accident anymore. And he took me under his wing. I'm in the post office there, and as I take this letter to hand it to the clerk. I had a newspaper that was rolled up under my arm. It had a code word on it, which Lee also noticed, Jario. Uh, I put something in the paper to show my fiance that I had arrived safely because he didn't want me to call and let his parents suspect he had a girlfriend in New Orleans. They probably wouldn't have let him go there at all. So anyway, here.
1: What was Jario? Jario. Judy's and arrive okay or something like that?
0: Yeah, yeah, it said Jario was the name. He said J-A are the first two initials there. Right. And the J-A and R-Yo, see the Yo is I am J-A. In other words, that was Robert's idea for the code. Yeah. Said, yeah, I was okay. Uh, please write, because he hadn't been writing. He, uh, Gee, I didn't even know whether he was going to come, because he, he wasn't writing. And I said, pretty here, and I and, and I initialed it J-A. And that J-A will become important later in the book, uh, because... Uh, from then on, if I had to uh, call Lee and it was public or something, uh, I said, where's the janitor? And, and you'll read about that, you know, near the oh, end of wh- the book. But
1: why did he talk to you in Russian that first time? Okay,
0: well, all right, I, dropped, I dropped the uh, newspaper and it wasn't he. Uh, he picked it up and I had a habit at that time. Remember, I told you I was at the University of Florida. Now, these people came from all over these uh, I had dated someone, for example, who was uh, from Iran. He was a prince from Iran. Uh, you know, he had oil wells and horses and so on. And I was studying Russian. I had been studying Russian ever since I was in high school. And in fact, it was paid for at Manatee College for me to go to a night class there because I wanted to be able to translate. I could already translate in French and uh, other languages, but Russian was harder. That is the various. Uh, Cancer research articles that came across technical Russian isn't really as hard as as regular Russian and I was always interested in Russian anyway I love Russian music. I love Russian literature. My family called me Judovsky I was just that much into Russian and one of the things I would use with boyfriends or anybody else to break the ice I'd say something in Russian and they would say hey, what was that? What's that you said? It was like an icebreaker. It wasn't um, So it wasn't an accident Well, I I was the one that was shocked because when he uh, picked up the newspaper for me, handed it back, I thanked him in Russian. Well, I said, basically, I said, well done, comrade. And he answered me in Russian. I was shocked. I had no concept. Nobody had ever answered me in Russian before. And he said it wasn't wise for me to speak Russian in New Orleans. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Clean cut young man. He's. Obviously I saw the Marine ring on his finger he had been a Marine or he walked like a soldier he was so upright he looked like a shining star compared to well the vomiting men I'd seen in the last few days you know and all the uh, all the people there that uh, were he was just he stood out as clean cut and noble even so anyway yeah he said he we started speaking a little Russian to each other and he soon learned I didn't know. Him very much my my russian was russian i basically could read more than speak so and, then
1: he took you to uh, mrs weber's men's well
0: show. he he walked he walked me to the ywca and and he had to take off he he couldn't stay later i find out that he had the job interview that afternoon and he he wasn't wearing the right clothes so he, but he said you know if you need anything just let me know well uh he shows up at the Royal Castle the next morning. And this is not any ordinary Royal Castle. This That's where they, they're open 24 hours. They serve these itty bitty hamburgers and so on. That's what they did. And I had gotten a job out there with a the waitress because I didn't want to be a Playboy bunny or a stripper <laughs> trying to make some money. And I followed her out because that the um, it was on Klaibor, uh, YWCA. You could go straight on the bus and go right on out to airline. Uh, And I get lost very easily, but I I followed her and it was even I could figure out how to get to this royal castle. And they hired me for a couple hours every morning for their rush hour. And this is very early in the morning. And but what was great is it paid for my bill see at the Y. So I took it. Well, Lee was fascinated by that. He says, You're out at that royal castle. And anyway, he went out there and he was there for, for breakfast. Well, later I learned that this royal castle wasn't an ordinary one. This is where Bobby Kennedy's Surveillance team uh, spent a lot of their time because you could step outside onto the parking lot there and look down the street, and you could see the Town and Country Hotel or Motel, I should say. And that belonged to Carlos Marcelo. We're talking about Jefferson Parish now, right next to New Orleans Parish. The
1: the godfather of New Orleans.
0: The godfather. That's where his office was. And this was their dead drop area where they, you know, exchanged information on Marcelo. And here I'm working there every morning. When they're, gather, they're gathering up the information from the night before and sending it off, I had all these different things going on that made Lee think that I knew a lot more about what, what the anti-Castro movement about was about and what Bobby Kennedy was doing and so on than I really did. In fact, that I even told him that I had dated Tony Lopez Fisquet. Now, Tony wasn't just anybody. Uh, Tony was the son of the finance minister of Castro's Cuba, and yeah. here I had been dating him. I was very anti-Castro. I was anti-Kennedy, too, I'll tell you. And Lee straightened me out on that in no time. So he told me, that, oh, knew, Lee knew so much about Cuba and so much about all the inner politics. It took years for it to get to the public. A,
1: a quick a quick parenthesis. You know, we always yes. think of the Bay of Pigs. And as I told you before the interview, my parents left Cuba in '63 yeah. after the missile crisis. But they always had this wondering, you know, was it Kennedy— who failed with bear pigs, or was it Alan Dulles who, who made it happen and that's why he got fired? Yeah,
0: see, and you're wondering, you've heard all of these anti-Kennedy statements, I know, because I was there in Florida, okay? And I knew how much they hated Kennedy. And I was, when I came to New Orleans, I was anti-Kennedy. I was frothing at the mouth against Kennedy. You know, I thought like, real jerk. Lee knew so much. And I believe he knew so much because of, of the particular position he was in because he could pose as pro-Castro, you know, and and get uh, information that the, the uh, Castro knew a lot more about the Bay of Pigs than than you, of course he would, because he was collecting a lot of information. To make a long story short, Lee learned, and so did David Ferry, and that's very important. You'll see it in how important it is in my book about David Ferry. But they learned the truth that, uh, and here Dave, too, thought uh, he was, he was, making speeches against Kennedy and seeing how much he hated him. that here it turned out it wasn't really Kennedy's fault. First of all, this program, as you know, started under Nixon, Richard Nixon. And it, it took a while, but but uh, Kennedy fired Dulles, Alan Dulles. And, of course, he, he made sure that, uh, well, he had to quit. I'll put it that way. Sure. And along with him, of course, um, you have the mayor of Dallas, as you know, was Earl Cabell. And Charles Cabell is in the CIA second in command as far as the Bay of Pigs material goes, he too is canned by Kennedy. Kennedy knew who was really to blame. They had really put a number on Kennedy and no, no. Kennedy had to take the blame because he right. was the commander in chief. But I got I got the truth. I got the skinny in New Orleans. And it wasn't it wasn't Kennedy's fault. He never would have they were furious with him for putting up the blockade instead of – they wanted to have, to have Havana bombed. What would have happened to your family That's if right. Havana had been bombed?
1: That's why I wouldn't be here talking to you, period.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if it hadn't been for Kennedy, Havana wouldn't be on the earth anymore. In fact, we, who knows if any of us would be here because, uh, of course, the USSR would have rushed in. So, I mean, we owe Kennedy a lot. You could hardly get a breathe a breather of that, even a, a hint of that in the 50th anniversary I mean, they skimmed over and they even made, you know, Kennedy look like the bad guy. They do not want this country to mourn JFK. They focused on his drug taking, his womanizing and everything else and minimize his heroic efforts. As you know, as a PT-109 captain, he saved people's lives. He, he pulled one man by his teeth, you know, hang on to with his teeth and swam and got him to shore who was injured. I mean, we're talking about heroic president who has been minimized and, uh, made they don't want the public to mourn his death. They just don't. And I'm, I assure you that Kennedy was not really responsible for what happened at the Bay of Pigs. He refused to let them bomb those areas. He made them move their target so it wouldn't hit so many people, even if it meant, yes, even if it meant that we had a lot of, of uh, people who uh, ended up what, well, 2,000 of them, you know, got arrested and and a whole bunch of them were uh, tortured and executed. CIA never forgave Kennedy for that.
1: Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex. Do yes. you think Kennedy tried to do something about it? And that's one Absolutely. of the reasons. Oh, yeah.
0: sure he did. Oh, we have evidence of that everywhere. Not only did he say, make a statement not long after canning Cabell, whose brother, of course, that's where uh, Kennedy ended up getting shot to death, was in Dallas, his brother's uh, city. Who, by the way, that man used to be the chief of police there. I don't know whether you knew that or not. And no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yes, he was. He had considerable influence over the Dallas police as well. And uh, that whole setup of having him go through Dallas and the way it was done, I mean, <sighs> uh, I think so much of President Kennedy, and I I am dedicated, actually, to making sure that his memory is not besmirched any more than it already is. Most of your great leaders have had liaisons with women and whatever, and we now know he was taking so many, uh, as you know, uh, drugs of the kind that he he was taking a lot of steroids, and that that just changes your whole personality that way. He was already cheating. Jackie knew he was always going to run around on her, from the time they got married, she knew it. But he loved her. And, you know, near the end, after she lost that Patrick, baby Patrick, um, they became closer. They were really a lot closer. And the only reason she didn't spend the night in his bed, the night before he died, Kennedy's bed, he had to lay on a very special mattress, a hard mattress, because of his back. Back pain. It was too narrow for for two of them. So she went into a side room there.
1: Now going back to Lee for a moment, how is Lee Oswald allowed to return to the United States after allegedly defecting (laughs) to, to the Soviet union?
0: Oh, this is, you know, they, the anti Oswald people, you know, they, they hurry over this section. They just say, he came back, blah, 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 blah. What he did was extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. First of all, the young man, uh, over that goes into the Soviet Soviet Union, you know, but he goes to the U.S. Embassy there, throws down his passport, says, I want to renounce my citizenship. But he doesn't sign any papers, sir. Never signs that he's renounced anything. People don't realize and recognize that. He is in the Soviet Union for... It's more than two and a half years. It's like two and three quarter years. He comes back. He picks up his passport. They had it waiting for him there. I mean, they had it waiting for him there. Think about this. I. I the other thing he said is, I'm going to tell the Soviets everything I know. Now, we know that uh, Delgado uh, was, uh, I think Sergeant Delgado was his boss there when he was um, at, at Sugi, Japan. That's the u U-2 air base. He said they had to change all the codes. Lee Oswald knew all the codes. He knew how many U-2s were coming in here, there, and where the bases were. He knew how high they flew. He knew all the the uh, various, um, uh, they had to, uh, various IDs for different uh, bases. He knew all of this. They had to change all of that because Lee Oswald gave it to the Soviets. Now, how just let's give you some perspective here. Imagine today if, well, we could even say it was the USSR. Imagine if someone today went into the U.S. Embassy in the USSR and said, uh, I've been working uh, in Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq. I've been working uh, over here in uh you know, in Ukraine and I know all the all the stuff that the USA is gonna do to the Ukraine if the Russians get involved. Do You think they'd let him out of the building? No. We we're talking about they let Lee Oswald out of the embassy to do as he pleased. He comes back and he gets a loan for some four hundred dollars and uh he gets it from the so called Red Cross. This is actually he gets this, this from the uh United States government. It comes from the government, and it's uh, there's a special uh, code that's used. It says this: the, the, you cannot give this kind of loan to any expatriate, you know, to, to repatriate him you know, back into the United States, unless number one, he is a you know bona fide, you know, non-traitorous individual, and number two, you know, he's he's got to have special reasons to be able to come back. Lee Oswald gets the loan, and he comes back to the United States. He shows up in New York, and he wants to do some sightseeing. He needs an extra $200 to stay an extra day. Um, We we see that he gets very interesting interviews there with a guy who says, oh, I did all these interviews, you know, because I could speak Russian. Well, yeah, but he was CIA too, okay? And to make a long story short, the man comes back. Even though we have Webster and others, when they came back, they got arrested. They weren't allowed to bring their wives or families Lee brings in his wife, a Russian wife, and his Harder. new his child and nothing happens.
1: All these events it strike to me as if uh he's trying to to establish the reputation, for example, even back in the marines. why was he dishonorably? discharge was that on purpose so that he could start planting the seed okay that, now I... that
0: was not he was not dishonorably discharged he was undesirable at first they put in the paper that he was undes- uh, that he was dishonorable okay. there's a big difference between what is the difference? Um, Oh, huge difference. Uh, dishonorable discharge means that you've done something so bad that, uh, that it's like even traitorous. Or maybe you've killed somebody or, or you know, you, you've you uh, injured another Marine or whatever, say, so it's like that. And you'll never get back in. Undesirable means we just don't want you back for certain reasons.
1: Now, was that all on purpose of that the reputation was building for the...
0: Now, imagine if he had entered the USSR and, first of all, he was a better... I hate to say this, but... It's true. He was a better shot than than his records show. If he had shown that what a what a good shot he really was, um, they could have executed him in the USSR because they might think he's coming in as a sniper. Um, but having said that, Lee never had an opportunity to practice or uh, you know any target practice or anything like that after he got back for the USSR. So I mean, it doesn't count. The fact that he he could shoot a little better than than the records show. So he had to have a poor record. His Remember, the first shot time he was uh, shooting was his best record, and he got worse the next two times instead of the other way around. So a lot of this was rigged. Now, if he had a perfect record as a good marine, why in the world would he want to go to the USSR and say, "I hate the Marines, I quit. okay, Because he didn't quit the Marines. Remember, he went into the reserves of the Marines, which a lot of people don't realize. And the only reason he, and he came out with an honorable discharge from the Marines, they changed it. OK, when he didn't show up for his reserve training, because he's supposed to, you know, he's supposed to go once a year.
1: So what was, the, what, what was the real reason? why? What was the possibility that he went to the Soviet Union and what action did he take for the U.S. government?
0: All right. Uh, I know more about this than most people do, because, of, of course, I was curious. There's a lot that Lee, you'd be surprised how much he couldn't say for my safety and for others as well, because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. But basically, uh, all these preparations were made so that when Lee went into the USSR, he would have, for example, he got himself at, in the brig by pouring a glass of beer over his sergeant's head. Now, that sounds really violent, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of uh, thing he did. But all the time, he's studying Russian. And if someone called him, he'd say, did you call, comrade? You know, and uh, he's a Hmong. And this is at the height of the Cold War. He's on a ship. With all these Marines, he's playing Russian music and he's playing chess and he's reading Russian literature and he's saying he's practicing his Russian and he gets away with it. Come on. These people had to know that, you know, this is this guy. And they, he, he, the way Lee got around it is he had a terrific sense of humor. So it was all funny. And they didn't beat him up or say, you, you've you got to be a communist. They called him Osvaltsevich. As- As- was-
1: Oh, Swaltovish. You know, yeah. Yeah.
0: They, yeah, he, they, you know, and I was called Judovsky. Think about that. I mean, the two of us were just nuts about Russian this, that, and the other. So we had that in common anyway.
1: Now he called so you Judovsky, right?
0: Uh, he called me Judovsky. He said Judovsky was not good Russian. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: So he, my mother, my parents called me Judovsky. He said, no, Judovsky. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, he called me Judovsky. Judovsky. And bless him, oh, honey, if you knew him and how funny he could be and all that, I mean, people who did know him, and I'll give you an example, Francis Martello, who was a detective with the police in New Orleans, when Lee was arrested on the 9th, you'll see photographs of Lee before and after. Uh, When he's there in the mugshot, you'll see there are marks on his chin and on his ears. Look closely because you you have to blow up the picture to see it. He has cuts he's got bruises, marks on his ears and all around his chin. And I said, Lee, what happened to you? He said, well, you know, when I was there, they, I mean, they're just doing their job. They think I'm a communist. So they, um, they hit me a little and they pinched my ears and they pinched my chin. They hurt him. Those, some of those marks were still on his, still on his chin in November. And he said, I can't hold it against them because they love their country. They think they're doing that for their country. And, of course, Lee would have to pretend that he was pro-Castro and all that so that he'd be able to do things for our government, for our country. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because when Lee is... uh, Martello didn't say, hey, guess what? We abused this man. He didn't tell that to the Warren Commission. What he said to the Warren Commission is, I would bet my head on a chopping block that this man was incapable of shooting Kennedy. Now, that's what the one man said who just knew him one day. Now, when Lee was uh, there uh, being questioned and everything, at the end, they put him in the jail cell and they finally gave him dinner. And they scooped up some dirt with roaches and they put it on top of his food. And he looked at it and he said, Ah, Roach mode.
1: Roach Alamode.
0: Yeah, Roach Alamode. Now, this is the kind, Martello knew darn well this man had no, you couldn't rile him to anger. You see what I'm saying? He knew he just wouldn't kill Kennedy on it, what on it. A bad mood that day because his wife was angry at him that day. He's going to go and shoot the president. He knew it was impossible. Anybody who really knew Lee knew it was impossible. That's all it, I can say.
1: Well, one time there was an altercation when somebody tried to mug both of you. A, oh yeah, a big man. You want to tell that story quickly?
0: Yeah, we were. Uh, we didn't want to go into Clay Shaw's place because uh, they, well, they were drinking. The people who we were with it drank too much, and we were at Antoine's and he drank too much, and now they're. <laughs> They're not there. It's not telling dirty jokes and everything. Lisa says, I don't want to take you in there. And so we went walking. It was getting pretty late. So we're going to go back. And I was excited because uh, Carlos Marcello did have some limousines and he could really show off like David Ferry, could, who could use tough language. He would say, yeah, you know, he had his bitches in the limo and they'd serve, you know, they'd serve you wine right there in the limousine. You know, well, that's not what we had that night. We had Carlos Marcelo's car that he used when he was a tomato salesman. As far as the FBI was concerned, and so it was a two-tone Chevy and kind of beat up. But I wanted—I said, "I oh, I want to put my little bottom down on the seat of that car." And Lee laughed. He said, "You doodlehead, you can't." He said that because I was stuck in the car with this group uh, to get to uh, Clay Shaw's place, and putting me in. There was no place for me to sit. I had to sit in Lee's lap. <laughs> so I didn't get a chance to put my bottom down on the upholstery. So Lee said, now we'll go to his car because uh, Jack Ruby gave us the keys. He said, uh, and I'll drive you home. Well, we're on our way there. And all of a sudden, this guy steps out of the darkness. And this is one block down from 1313 Dauphine, where the Clay Shaw's place was. And I, I showed Nigel Turner and others. There's only one spot there in a whole block where anybody could have hidden and then stepped out and I showed him where it was because those houses are just stuck together, you know, like one after the other in this one spot there he wasn't, he came out and stood there and big guy and he's a big sailor and he was drunk and he had veins were throbbing in his, you know, in his neck, you could see him sticking out and he, he had worked himself up and he said, girly, you know, you know, Give me your purse," and Lee said, "You don't want our purse." <laughs> and he says to him, "You know, to get your wallet, I want your wallet." And he had a, he had a knife. I mean, excuse me. Yeah, he had a. Uh, Lee looks at him, and he says, uh, "Okay." So he starts pulling out his wallet, and under his wallet, he had a switchblade, and he opened that thing up, and and the guy says. You, you know, you give that to me or I'm going to cut up your face. He said, well, you may cut my face, but not before I get your balls. And that guy took off. And Lee, we we ran to the car. We got in. He locked the doors. He turned on the engine. And we we're just like that, you know. And, and then he starts shaking. I said, gee, Lee. He said, sure, I was scared. He said, you know, uh, it's not what's, it, it doesn't matter if you're afraid. He said, this will pass. So he, and he was such a brave person. And, you know, uh, his trembling. he said, it was because he was afraid, but that's okay. You know, the point is, is to overcome your fear and, and do what you have to do.
1: You, you're not a coward because you're afraid. You're a coward right. when you cannot act when you're afraid.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: This is just an incredible story, and we have to take our one and only intermission. But let me just say this. Over 100 murders, suicides, mysterious deaths— The strange fate of those who saw Kennedy shot in the three-year period, which followed the murder of President Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. Richard
0: Charnin, have you seen Richard Charnin's work?
1: Yes, yes. Eighteen material witnesses died: six by gunfire, three motor accidents, two by suicide, one from a cutthroat, one from a karate chop to the neck, three from heart attacks, and two from natural causes. The question well, that is... that's
0: just the beginning. That's and the beginning. By the way, I, I just gave him another name the day before yesterday, and oh. he accepted it when I showed him. It was a Bishop Stanley, and Bishop Stanley had given information to the FBI the day after David Ferry was found dead, who was, by the way, murdered, as you'll find out in my book about David Ferry. And uh, Carl Stanley, what happened next to him is uh, this bishop, the minute, the day after the, the uh, FBI report came out, he suffers a heart
1: attack. In all bed. the story, because I want you to tell that when we come back. But my question was, and I'll get your answer on the way back, yes. too. All these people have died. You waited until 1999 to speak. But yeah. that doesn't seem that you have not suffered some oh subversion, some, yeah. some attempts to destroy you to the point that uh, your car was hit twice. You had a dog you were walking your dog a lady across the street called the dog, she pulls a gun, shoots the dog in the head. A lot of stuff has happened. Some of your family members do not talk to you. I want to discuss this when we come back and the rest of the story. please tell tell people how can they how can they buy this book me and Lee. It's outstanding book.
0: Well, you, if you go to meandlee.com, you know, you can you can order it from Trine Day. You can also get it if, if if you don't want to help my publisher, but you know what I'm saying. The cheapest place is to get it at amazon.com. That's very easy for people to remember. You can even pre-purchase David Ferry book and that's good because for example, Me and Lee ran out and we some people had to wait for a reprint, you know, for extra edition. So, <laughs> excuse me, getting your uh, copy pre-ordered uh, assures that, you know, you won't have to wait for it if, if the first printing runs out.
1: This is totally unrelated to Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Timothy McVeigh.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? They execute him, so we cannot, of course, ever find out about him. Right. And they keep Sir Sirhan Sir under such kind of hypnotic trances that we'll be lucky if we ever find anything out about him. Of course, you know that, that uh, Sir Sirhan Sir wasn't the one who killed RFK. Well, you, unless he can put it, unless he can grow his arm fifteen feet and have it go behind his head.
1: Right. I want to thank also Ed Haslam and Jim Mars. I had to leave the country to make contact with uh, Judith Very Baker, and I'm glad that she's here with us today, telling us the her side of the story. So much more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first hour of this special three-hour Veritas interview with. Judith Very Baker. Our special guest has granted an additional bonus hour, two more hours to go, in order to discuss this very important story in as much detail as possible, the Veritas way. You don't want to miss it, as you may certainly not be aware of some of the very important pieces of this puzzle. There is no doubt that America suffered a coup d'etat on November 22, 1963, and nothing has ever been the same. To listen to the next two hours, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the member section with the rest of this most riveting interview with Judith Very Baker. Enjoy.
0: This is Judith Very Baker, and thank you for allowing me to speak to you today. And you're listening to Veritas.